Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Okay, only three episodes left on Roman Catholicism. So today and next week will be a part one and part two series on the Marian dogmas. And then I'm going to do like a final sort of summary Roman Catholicism episode, and then we'll be done. Now, I know, you know, when I originally plotted out just kind of roughly what I wanted to do on Roman Catholicism. I think it was around eight to 10 episodes. So we have far surpassed that at this point. But I think knowing what other people believe um, and seeing how they're interpreting the Bible and, and just different things like that, it challenges you to think for yourself and really ground in what you know why you believe what you believe. And this is what this podcast is about. It's why I believe what I believe. Um, so hopefully, just as you've listened along, you may disagree with me on on some things. You may agree with me on others. Um, you know, as a Protestant, of course, show me from Scripture. You know, I have changed my mind just over the years of studying the Bible and listening to different people teaching on various passages. I have changed my mind on different things, and so uh, you know, I want us to to be challenged and to constantly go back to Scripture. And, and see if we're, we are holding true to what Scripture teaches. Now, just a few reminders, uh, or actually one main reminder. A dogma of the Roman Catholic Church is something you must believe. I know I've, I've told you this a, a bunch of times, but in Roman Catholicism, you cannot disagree with a dogma. You can't even disagree with it privately. You in, in your heart, you must believe this to be a faithful Roman Catholic. In an article I was reading that it was a pro-Catholic article that was listing out just the, the basic summary of the four Marian dogmas, it said this at the very beginning, quote, dogmas are those doctrines of the church which have been defined by the Pope and the teaching authority of the church. Dogmas are teaching or doctrine of the church that have been bolded, underlined, and italicized, so to speak. They are proposed for our belief, and faithful Catholics are not free to dissent from them. So again, today we'll go over the the, the first two Marian dogmas, and I'm going to go in chronological order as they were as they were listed out in church councils or papal decrees. And so again, Catholics must believe them. And we've we've got this this um, disagreement, really, in my mind, between Scripture and the Roman Catholic tradition. So, are the Marian dogmas supported in Scripture so much so that Rome can pronounce anathema on you? Do they can excommunicate you if you don't believe in those? Now, as we're as we're learning about these Marian dogmas, just ask yourself: If someone just picked up the Bible and started reading. Would they come up with any of these beliefs about Mary? So, you know, many, many Catholics pray only to Mary. Uh, this is especially common in, in Latin America. There's, there's many women in, in Latin American countries who they are, they are wholly devoted to Mary. I mean, that, that's who they pray to, statues, all this stuff. They are constantly praying to the Virgin Mary. They're, they've never even read the Bible. They're not even familiar with what the Bible teaches about Mary, yet they have these huge devotions to Mary. My challenge would be just simply read the Bible. I look this up. Besides the four Gospels, Mary is mentioned two times in the New Testament. So other than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
which, you know, many times when Mary's mentioned there, it's just simply telling the narrative of what's happening. But in the rest of the New Testament, Mary is only mentioned twice. Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. That'll come up later on today. Now, Galatians 4.4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. So those are the only two times outside of the four Gospels that we hear about Mary in the New Testament. Now, Catholics will try to use all kinds of Old Testament symbols like the Ark of the Covenant, and they they try to pull all these these typology-type arguments, which can be used to prove a, a ton of stuff. I can I can make up a bunch of stuff and and you know utilize the same methods that Roman Catholics use to justify all their claims about how Mary was you know symbolized in the Old Testament. So Catholics would disagree with that statement. They'll say, oh, there's stuff in Revelation about Mary and and all this, but Mary is only mentioned twice in the in the New Testament, other than the four Gospels. Now, if the Roman Catholic Church is based on apostolic tradition, the the stuff that the apostles taught, if these huge, massive doctrines about Mary, and just think about the volumes of books that have been written by the Roman Catholic Church, and just all the stuff that, with Mary, why didn't we hear much of this in the New Testament? Why, you know, never do the apostles go into all this stuff about uh, all these Marian dogmas. So all of it has to be, you have to take what the Roman Catholic Church has has told us to find in Scripture and, and has told us to find in history, and you go back and then that's how they justify all of their claims. Now, as a disclaimer, I certainly honor Mary. Um, sometimes Protestants are accused of dishonoring Mary just because we don't you know, venerate her like the the Catholic Church does. But I, I honor Mary, the true Mary, that is. I'm inspired by her obedience. Um, what a difficult situation, you know, she was in. Um, I, I ponder the depths of her suffering. You know, this is her son who she sees dying on the cross. Um, so I believe in the true Mary, the one that we learn about in the Bible. I do not despise Mary. I, I don't dishonor her in any way. Um, but as a Protestant, I you know we, we are hypersensitive to the idea of what Catholics would say is venerating Mary. We you know uh, as I discussed in last week's episode, this is borderline, if not absolute, worship of Mary and some of the things that they pray to Mary and just the the thoughts that they have about Mary. Um, so you know Catholics they're venerating. But let me remind you of some of these prayers. I read these last week. In your hands, this is to Mary now. In your hands, I place my eternal salvation, and to you I entrust my soul. Count me among your most devoted servants. Take me under your protection, and it is enough for me. For if you protect me, dear mother, I fear nothing from my sins, because you will obtain for me the pardon of them, nor from the devils, because you are more powerful than all hell together, nor even from Jesus, my judge, because by one prayer from you, he will be appeased." Obtain for me, therefore, the pardon of my sins, love for Jesus, final perseverance, and the grace to have recourse to you, O Mother of perpetual help. That's you know, <laughs> that is not found in the New Testament. That that type of devotion to Mary. 
Now, you can always connect with me, bearchristianity at gmail.com. You can message me on Instagram at the real Bear Martin. And this episode of Bear Christianity is sponsored by the Dad Drone. In a time filled with technological advances, the Dad Drone is sure to become a favorite. The Dad Drone hovers over its owner and can assist him in many ways. Your kids have been playing with the TV remote and it's currently at the bottom of a box of Barbie dolls? The Dad Drone saw the whole thing. Besides being equipped with infrared and thermal imaging, it can also lift up to 200 pounds. This comes in handy when you're at the beach. Don't drag the cooler, beach chairs, umbrella, toys, and bags through that hot, loose sand anymore. Simply load up the Dad Drone and let it do the work. You have daughters old enough to date? With the Dad Drone voice commands, just say, Sick'em, and the Dad Drone will follow your daughter and her boyfriend the entire night. Bear Christianity listeners receive a free drink holder attachment when they use the coupon code DADLIFE. The Dad Drone. Every dad needs an eye in the sky. Details may vary. Some restrictions may apply. The first of the Marian dogmas is that Mary is the mother of God. Now, this was established in the, the count by the Council of Ephesus in AD 431. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, number 495, says this, Called in the Gospels the mother of Jesus, Mary is acclaimed by Elizabeth at the prompting of the Spirit and even before the birth of her son as the mother of my Lord. In fact, the one whom she conceived as man by the Holy Spirit, who truly became her son according to the flesh, was none other than the Father's eternal Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Hence, the church confesses that Mary is truly mother of God, or the Greek word there is theotokos, theotokos. Now, the Council of Ephesus, it, its, its purpose was to further define the biblical view of Jesus. And so like the, the Council of Nicaea, which I've talked about in previous episodes, the Council of Ephesus, the, the purpose of these early church councils is to come to the Bible and determine what the Bible taught about Jesus or the Holy Spirit, you know, various things. Now, the Council of Ephesus was called as a result of, of what was coming up in the church as the Nestorianism controversy. So Nestorius was a, a bishop, and he was teaching that Mary was not Theotokos, the mother of God. Rather, he taught that Mary was Christotokos, which is mother of Christ. Now, that may sound to be the, the exact same, but where, where Nestorius was making distinctions here is he was saying that Jesus Christ had two separate natures, a divine nature and a human nature, and they were completely separate from one another. That's where people that disagreed with Nestorius were having a problem, is you can't just completely split up Christ's natures into to human and divine. Now, the opposite of this, a response to Nestorius was another heresy, which is known as Eutychianism. And so uh, this was that the divine nature of Christ and the human nature of Christ were mixed together. So he had one nature that was mixed. Now, this also presents a problem because no longer is Christ fully divine and fully human. It, it's, a, it's a mix. So Nestorianism and Eutychianism were both seen as problems. Nestorianism, if you, if, you know, I've got my, if you could see me, I've got my hands together here. Each hand represents, one represents the divine nature of Christ and the human nature of Christ. So 
the in in Nestorianism they are completely separated apart and in Eutychianism they are mixed together so I'm like you know intertwining my fingers and and mixing it together the orthodox position and and Protestants and Catholics all agree on this the orthodox position is called the hypostatic union now I talked a lot about this in episode 10 of this podcast so you can check that out again as a refresher but the hypostatic union teaches that Jesus Christ had one it was one person again this is like a, a philosophical term person uh, Jesus Christ was one person with two natures and those two natures were in hypostatic union with one another basically it's it's those two natures are touching they're joined in a in a certain way but they're not mixing and they're not totally separate so again nestorianism totally separates them eutychianism mixes them together and both of those have issues when you go to the Bible and, and you know the full teaching of Scripture. And so the hypostatic union was a way of clarifying how the Bible describes Jesus Christ. So now nowadays Christians affirm that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man, or truly God and truly man. That's, that's kind of the orthodox position. Again, Catholics and Protestants agree on all of this stuff. So that was the purpose of the Council of Ephesus. Now, uh, again, this is not some new teaching. This is this is not like the Roman Catholic Church got together and said, you know what, this is a new teaching. This is it's called the hypostatic union. No, the hypostatic union, much like the word Trinity, is simply a way of describing what the Bible teaches. And so that that was the purpose of the council. Notice. I'm not talking about Mary much at all, okay? With the Council of Ephesus, it was about, you know, who is Jesus and and the the nature's argument of Jesus, divine nature, human nature, and how are those related, okay? That's what the argument was about. Now, in calling Mary the mother of God versus the mother of Christ, like Nestorius was, was calling her, um, that is distinguishing something about who Jesus is, that he had a divine nature and a human nature. So therefore, they could call Mary Theotokos, the mother of God. So this, this council was not about Mary. It was about Jesus. And Mary is labeled with Theotokos. Now, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, takes this mother of God, Theotokos, and just goes nuts with it. So they say, if Jesus was the king of heaven, then of course, Mary is the queen of heaven. And the Bible says, honor thy father and mother. And of course, Jesus would make it, you know, so that his mother receives tremendous honor. And, you know, she is the mother of God. So they, it's it's borderline there. The Catholics wouldn't say that they're doing this, but they use this mother of God concept to, to elevate Mary above you know all other human beings they give her hyperdulia she she is due more praise and more honor and more glory than any other human who who ever lived and we we just again we don't see this in scripture this is taking theotokos and and running wild with it so again the focus of the council of ephesus was not on mary it was to deal with a dispute about the natures and the person of jesus christ the second of the Marian dogmas is the perpetual virginity of Mary. And so this was established by the Council of Constantinople II, 
and that council took place in AD 553. Now, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, numbers 499 and 500, say this, quote, The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. And so the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as the ever-virgin. Against this doctrine, the objection is sometimes raised that the Bible mentions brothers and sisters of Jesus. The church has always understood these passages as not referring to other children of the Virgin Mary. In fact, James and Joseph, brothers of Jesus, are the sons of another Mary, a disciple of Christ, whom St. Matthew significantly calls the other Mary. They are close relations of Jesus, according to Old Testament expression. Now, before we get into the perpetual virginity of Mary, I've got to tell you that, that several very popular reformers... Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, several others, big-time names in the Protestant Reformation, they, uh, they also held to uh, the belief in the perpetual virginity of Mary. So I've just mentioned you know, three of the most famous names in the Protestant Reformation that believed Mary was a perpetual virgin. Now, as you read some of their quotes about this teaching and why they believed that, uh, the the main argument that I heard over and over again is that in Hebrew, when you call someone a brother, uh, that can mean cousin or close relative and, and that sort of thing. So that's how they interpreted those passages. Now, my response to all this, because, you know, if you're talking to Catholics about the perpetual virginity, they say, listen, all the, you know, Protestant reformers or many of them held to this. So why do you reject it? Well, first, the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, they are not infallible. So, you know, again, I can look at church history, and every time I look at a person in church history, whether it be St. Augustine, the, you know, the reformers, John Chrysostom, I mean, anybody in church history, I can look at their writings and say, wow, that was awesome. That, that was, that's right in line with Scripture. I definitely can see that. And then other times, they may not be consistent with Scripture. And so, again, for me, the ultimate authority is what does Scripture teach? And, and so that's, my authority is not Martin Luther, John Calvin, or Zwingli, or, or any of the Reformers. All right? So my, my basis for my belief is on Scripture. Now, the danger that all of us have is that we can become trapped in our own traditions. I have my own traditions. You have your own traditions. Everybody has um, their traditions that sometimes they can be blind to. And so again, we, we go to Scripture. We're asking God to constantly take off the blinders and show us the truth from Scripture. But we can, be, we can become trapped in this. A, a modern example is we, we just, sometimes we hear uh, certain interpretations of the Bible and we just, we, we don't really look into it. We've just heard it over and over and over again. And we start to make assumptions and, and hold these as like absolute truths when the Bible doesn't actually teach that. A, a real common one is if I asked you, what book of the Bible would you turn to if you wanted to read about the Antichrist? Most people in, in your head, you may think Revelation, but Antichrist is not mentioned in Revelation. The beast is mentioned in Revelation. And so in a, a popular way of 
interpreting the Bible over the last 200 years or so makes the beast and the Antichrist the same individual. And so we we simply, in hearing Antichrist, we just assume that the Antichrist is in Revelation. But it, that's not it's not necessarily what the Bible teaches. And so again, we we constantly go back to the Bible for for all of our truth. We've we've got to constantly be reevaluating that. It doesn't mean that we can never know uh, certainty. The Holy Spirit works with you as you are reading Scripture and reveals truth to you. Um, so, but we, we've we've got to be humble enough to know that we are not infallible, and and we certainly don't hold other men that have gone before us as infallible. It is Scripture alone that we must always go to. Now, the the perpetual virginity it cannot be defended by Scripture alone. Outside traditions and ideas must be used to read past the normal meaning of words, and and we'll get into this in a second. Uh, Remember, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the perpetual virginity of Mary is a dogma. It must be believed. Now, the Reformers that I've just mentioned earlier, they believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, they were busy refuting lots of other (laughs) ideas in Catholicism, and I could be wrong about this next statement, but I don't think they would have said, you're not a Christian, if if I you know if if I was sitting with Martin Luther, both our Bibles are open and we're going through these passages. You know he may be able to convince me that the Bible truly does teach Mary's a, a virgin. But you know if he if he could, if I was convinced from Scripture that she was, then that's what I would believe. But my belief would be based on Scripture, not because the Church told me to, or even because Martin Luther told me to, or because he believed that. It would be because I was convinced from Scripture. Now, you may think, what's the big problem with the virginity of Mary? I mean, don't we all affirm that? And yes, we'd, every Christian affirms that Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, the Catholic Church teaches that Mary remained a virgin. That, that's hence the name perpetual virginity. Mary remained a virgin before, and of course, everybody agrees with that, but also during the birth of Jesus and after Jesus was born, Mary remained a virgin her entire life. So again, before, obviously, Mary was a virgin. The angel comes to her. You're going to have a son. How, you know, how could this happen to me? The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. So every Christian affirms that. But the Catholic Church takes it a step further in saying that Mary remained a virgin even during birth. So in, in the Catechism 499, I've read it already, but, but listen to this again, because they're, here's what they're saying. They're saying that as Jesus was being born in the act of giving birth, Mary remained a virgin. So Catechism 499, the deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. Now, physically, there is a blockage in the birth canal of a virgin. And what the Catholic Church is saying is that that was not broken in any way. So it's kind of impossible for Jesus to pass through the birth canal in a natural way and not diminish his mother's virginal integrity if you get what i'm saying and so this is this is a this becomes a an extremely strange birth of jesus um so where did this idea come from 
a document called the Proto-Evangelium of James, or sometimes called the Infancy Gospel of James. It was written in the second century, and uh, Catholic Answers, when I was reading an article on this, they date it to AD 120, um, but uh, another source that I have is called the Lexham Bible Dictionary, dates it AD 150 to 200. So, so sometime in the second century, roughly 120 to to 200, um, this Proto-Evangelium of James was written. Now, the book claims to be written by James, the brother of Jesus, but no scholars believe this because it it inaccurately describes some geography in Judea. So it's written outside of Judea by someone not really familiar with the area, but they're claiming to be James, the brother of Jesus. Now, what's interesting is a Catholic Answers tract entitled, What the Early Church Believed About Jesus?, when when they're defending their position, the majority of the information references this Proto-Evangelium of James. So a summary of this document, and you can you can read it for free. It's not too long of a read, maybe maybe 30 minutes or so. But the um the the summary is this uh, Mary's parents are barren, and God gives them a child, which is Mary, of course. So they dedicate Mary to the temple. Now, at age 12, Mary is is dedicated as a temple virgin. So she takes this vow uh, to be a virgin her whole life, and, and so she's, she serves in the temple, and she's a dedicated virgin. Now, this is where Joseph comes in. Joseph, in this story, is an older man who is, I guess you could say, married or sort of assigned to Mary to protect her virginity. So it's his responsibility to make sure she remains a virgin. Now, so this is not like a a normal marriage. Um, and and in this story, Joseph is an older man, and so it's it's a different relationship than maybe what you've historically you know, considered as you're just reading the biblical accounts of Joseph and Mary. Anyway, an angel appears and tells Mary that she will have a child. And so Joseph is afraid of like getting in trouble. He's, he, um, he will be suspected of having sexual relations with Mary, or he has let someone else sneak in and, and have sex with Mary. Um, so he's failing at his duty. And so he's, you know, her, her virginal vow has been violated. And so Joseph and Mary both have to undergo this uh, a certain test, and they are proved innocent by this test. So then they're on the way to Bethlehem. Uh, Mary has has the baby in a cave, and so this is where I'm going to read. This is from the Proto-Evangelium of James. It's from chapter 19. So, quote, And they, Joseph and the Hebrew midwife, stood in the place of the cave, and behold, a luminous cloud overshadowed the cave. And the midwife said, My soul has been magnified this day, because my eyes have seen strange things, because salvation has been brought forth to Israel. And immediately the cloud disappeared out of the cave, and a great light shone in the cave, so that the eyes could not bear it. And in a little, that light gradually decreased until the infant appeared and went and took the breast from his mother, Mary. And the midwife cried out and said, This is a great day to me because I have seen this strange sight. And the midwife went forth out of the cave and Salome met her. And she said to her, Salome, Salome, I have strange sight to relate to you. A virgin has brought forth a thing which her nature admits not of. 
Then said Salome, As the Lord my God lives, unless I thrust my finger and search the parts, I will not believe that a virgin has brought forth. So, again, Jesus here was born without physically disrupting Mary's virginity. So you have this, this thick cloud, then you have a super bright light, and then a baby appears. And this woman, Salome, she doesn't believe this. And she says, you know, unless I put my finger into Mary to test her virginal integrity, I, I won't believe it. And so we find out later in chapter 20 that that Salome does this. And, and as she uh, feels around and, and, and figures out that Mary is still a virgin, um, her hand begins to drop away as if it's being burned off. And then an angel of the Lord appears and says to, to, to Salome, touch the baby and hold him and you will be healed. So again, a, a very strange account of the birth of Jesus Christ, but that's the Proto-Evangelium of James written in the second century. Now, again, this is a false document. It has a fake author, an, an author claiming to be James, the brother of Jesus, but it is, it is not, it's likely not even written by someone who's familiar with Judea. Remember, this is the primary source listed in this Catholic Answers tract for what the early church believed. Now, Origen taught in the third century that this Proto-Evangelium of James was, quote, untrustworthy and, quote, a late heretical work. Pope Galatius in the fifth century condemned many of these apocryphal writings which included the Proto-Evangelium of James, and says that these books are, quote, to be avoided by Catholics, okay? So this is where the, the Roman Catholic Church tradition is so important. It, Rome says you must believe this, and so it doesn't matter the historical source. If it, if it agrees, then, the, then Catholics will use it. They use this Proto-Evangelium of James, like the, the Catholic Answers tract. If it doesn't agree, then, oh, that's a, that's a false teaching in church history. And so any quote in church history that disagrees with Rome, oh, that, you know, we shouldn't believe that. We can't believe that. That's not what the, that's not what the unified Catholic Church of 2,000 years believed. And so that you know that's there that's how they they argue with with church history. Now, you may say, well, aren't you kind of doing the same thing in a different way? Um, for me, when I look at church history, again, it's all it's sola scriptura. I, I'm comparing everything to scripture. So if if some some quote from some church father or some document, if it is not consistent with biblical teaching, then I it is I am not bound to believe that. If it is consistent with biblical teaching, if St. Augustine wrote a sermon on John and I you know, look at the Bible and I'm studying John and I'm like, man, this is great insight and it's consistent with what the Bible teaches, then awesome, I'll use it. But it doesn't mean I'm bound to believe everything that Augustine taught. And so the difference is the ultimate authority, the Roman Catholic Church, it is sola ecclesia. Uh, for me, it is scripture, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now, the problem with with all with this belief that Mary's virginal integrity was kept intact somehow, and Jesus um, sort of beamed out of Mary, as as James White says, um, you know, that the problem with that is that the Bible teaches that Jesus took on flesh. He he truly became human. John one fourteen says, and the Word that is that's talking about Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in this Proto-Evangelium of James, it is, is sometimes called a Proto-Gnostic. 
gospel, proto-Gnostic. Now, Gnosticism included a wide range of, of false beliefs, so it's a, it's a big area. But one of the main components is that the physical or material uh, aspects of a person are, are somehow inferior to uh, the divinity, that, that everybody has like this divine spark in them. Um, anyway, it's a, it, physical and material things are thought to be less important and inferior, um, evil in a, in a certain way. And so if, if this Proto-Evangelium of James, if that's sort of an early Gnostic source, you can see how they would want to keep the virginal integrity of Mary, that, that Jesus is, it's, it's in a way, he's like not truly human. He can sort of pass out of Mary's womb without truly being born. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus would be born of a virgin, and so that word born is, you know, it means what we think it means, through the birth canal. Um, so, so Catholics will turn that phrase around and say he's born of a virgin, meaning she stays a virgin the whole time. So there's there's lots of disagreements on this view, but that's the problem that I see with it. Jesus truly took on flesh, and so this concept of Mary having to beam him out of her womb, and that somehow you know Jesus passing through the birth canal is is evil or wicked or or defiles Mary in some way. There, I just don't see that uh, teaching in Scripture at all. Um, the the birth of a child is is a blessing that that women are able to do that, and it's a beautiful thing. It's not um, in in no way is it is it wrong uh, to give birth to a, a child, and, and and so I don't see how that defiles Mary in any way. Now Catholics also believe that Mary remained a virgin after having Jesus. So again, she, Mary somehow took some uh, lifetime vow uh, to remain a virgin. Um, so, so marriage here to Joseph is not a standard marriage, like you would you would think most other <laughs> marriages are. Um, it, there's no consummation of this marriage, and again, Mar- uh, Joseph is thought to be some older man who pro- who's married to her only to protect her virginity, not to uh, have a normal marriage. Now, and there's several verses that. I think go against this idea that Mary remained a virgin her whole life. Um, in Matthew one eighteen, it says this: Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So there's nothing in here about Joseph, you know, being assigned to her to be a protector. In fact, it says when you know that being betrothed to Joseph, it assumes that their betrothal would eventually lead to sex because the the author has to clarify before they had come together, before they had consummated the marriage. As I read this, this assumes that this was a normal marriage. That as you know, the Matthew as he's writing this, he's like, "Yep, you know, there's there's nothing in here about Joseph being a protector of Mary's virginal integrity. It, it the assumption is Joseph and Mary are betrothed. They're going to get married, and and married people consummate the marriage. And so before any of that happened, just to make sure you know this, reader that Jesus was born of a virgin, which is so important to biblical prophecy and, and, and original, you know, Jesus was not born in sin, that sort of thing. So it's important that we understand Mary was a virgin, um, but again, the assumption is that this was a normal marriage. 
Now, Matthew 1, 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, just if you're just reading this, just you just picked up your Bible and you started reading, what is the plain meaning of this verse? Joseph took his wife, okay? Remember, he, w- he was considering uh, trying to find a, a quiet way to divorce her because she was pregnant and he hadn't slept with her. So, but the angel says, don't be afraid to take your, you know, take Mary as a wife. So he took his wife, but knew her not. Again, the assumption is that married people consummate the marriage, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So obviously knew her not, that's talking about sexual relations. Um, and, and so until she had given birth to a son, if this was a normal marriage, as the author is assuming, as he's writing, a normal marriage between Mary and Joseph, they, they, Mary has Jesus, and, and then they didn't sleep together until Jesus was born. So you would think, okay, afterwards, it's, it's a marriage, okay? Now, Catholics will point out that the word until is the Greek word heos, and so they'll, they'll go to the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 6.23, one of the most popular arguments by Catholics is, it says this, So for Michael, the daughter of Saul, she had no child until the day of her death. So she had no child until the day of her death. Well, she died. And so, of course, until that word heos there, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that something happens after the fact. So if Michael didn't have a child until the day of her death, it doesn't mean she started having children after her death. So that's that's how Catholics will argue this word heos. Now, there's also a, a big argument that is just a, a, a black hole of, <laughs> of, of disagreements between Catholics and Protestants. Lots of articles and even books have been written on this. But the phrase here is, that's used is heos who. Now, uh, it's, it's not who like who did that. It's um, who, if you're, if you're transliterating in the Greek, it would be H-O-U, uh, heos who. And so it's a phrase, and, and it could be translated like until which. Um, so in the New Testament, when this heos who phrase is used, then there is, it, it, after that, there is a change. And so, um, so when, when Joseph, and it says Joseph knew her not until heos who, it's using a phrase there, until she had given birth to a son. When the New Testament uses heos who, it's that phrase, it typically ends in a change, meaning they didn't sleep together, and then afterwards they did sleep together. Okay, so that's kind of the Protestant argument of the uh, of the original language. Now, in the New Testament, that's consistent. There are other Greek documents around the time of the the first century that use heos who, and it doesn't necessarily mean that things change afterwards. So it's a huge, big argument. I don't even care to to cover it. I just want you to be aware of that if you're looking into this stuff for yourself. Now, my response to this whole deal of, well, until doesn't necessarily mean that they had sex afterwards, the the normal meaning here, the normal context is that you have a man and a woman who get married, and they don't have sex until Jesus is born, and married people typically have sex. And so, so I think the normal meaning here is that 
afterwards, Joseph and Mary had sexual relations. So the Catholic position has to assume a lot of stuff that is not taught in the Bible. They have to assume that Mary has some vow of virginity, that Joseph was not really a, a husband like you know, every other husband is essentially there. There are different exceptions of people who are not able to consummate a marriage, but the the normal meaning of a marriage it, it, it sort of assumes that it's going to be consummated. So Joseph is some sort of protector of her virginity, um, and so they they assume that uh, that sex between a husband and wife is somehow. Um, now, Catholics would never say this, and they would say that we uphold the the beauty of um, of marriage. But to imply that, you know, of course, Joseph wouldn't dare touch Mary after she gave birth to Jesus, it implies that normal sexual relations between a husband and wife is is dirty or inferior or disgraceful or basically something negative. It, it implies that it would have been a negative thing for Joseph to, to have relations with his wife after, uh, after giving birth to Jesus. Uh, didn't God institute marriage? I, you know, the, again, we find nothing from Scripture that this would have been a bad thing for Joseph and Mary to to partake in. All right. Uh, now, none of these assumptions are taught in the Bible that that Catholics have to make. Now, I am making some assumptions when I'm reading this passage. My assumption is that married couples have sex typically, and so that's the only assumption I'm making. And I think that because the author. That Matthew is so careful to say, you know, he knew her not until she gave birth, and he took her as wife, but they did not, you know, know each other until you know Jesus was born. The all the Matthew is assuming that this is this is a normal marriage, and stuff happens in a normal marriage. All right, here's another verse: Matthew twelve verses forty six through fifty. While he was still speaking to the people, that is Jesus, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So, what is the plain meaning of this? Again, if you just picked up your Bible and started reading, somebody comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside asking to speak to you. Jesus, so so are we are we meant to think that Jesus is saying, Oh, well, that's my mother and my cousins or close relatives? You see, the, the Greek word here is adelphos, or or for, for the plural, it's adel adelphoi. But it means brother. That That is the, the standard meaning of the word. Now, it can mean other things like, you know, what's up, my brother? You know, that they, that may not <laughs> that may not be my literal brother. So it can mean, you know, close friend, kinsman, close relative. It can mean that, but it typically means brother, especially in the context of someone telling Jesus, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. So it, it's you know in the context there's no there's no reason we have to jump to some other aspect of the word that it something that that it can mean why should we jump to a a more rare nuanced meaning versus just the typical meaning of the word also there are Greek words used in the New Testament for cousin or relative. So it would have been very easy for the authors, if if the perpetual virginity 
of Mary was so important to to the apostles as they're as they're writing scripture you know they could have used plenty of other words just to clarify that these were not the the sons of Mary being Jesus brothers um so again there's just a lot of easy ways that this could have been explained but but rather we just hear mother and brothers and in the context it's it's easy to interpret it as simply brothers now remember the perpetual virginity of Mary is a dogma. You have to, when you look at this scripture, you have to believe that it cannot mean that Mary had other sons. It, it cannot mean that, no possible way. And if you do believe that, you are anathema. You are excommunicated from the church. Well, you know, it's, it's, that's a tough claim to make given just the simplicity of this verse. Also, think about this. Later in that verse, it said, you know, who are Jesus's true mother brother and brothers and sisters. So he's Jesus says, "Here are my he's pointing to his disciples. Here are my mother and my brothers. For, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother." And so, you know, Catholics they'll say, "Well, Jesus had no brothers because he gave care of his mother to John the apostle. When Jesus is dying on the cross, he looks at John and says, you know, behold your mother, you know, woman, behold your son. And so my response to this is Jesus gave his mother to his true brother. See, up until Jesus' resurrection, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus's brothers did not believe that he was who he claimed to be. And but John was a true disciple of Jesus and he says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so he he passes on uh mother uh, um Mary's care to John, his true brother as as Jesus defined it. Now, another point in all this is Jesus is using natural family language for his analogy. He says, whoever does the will of my father is my mother, brother, and sister, okay? Now, the, the Roman Catholic Church, again, he Jesus can't possibly mean this. He means, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother, cousin, and close relative. No, he, he's using close, natural family language, father, mother, brother, sister. So why are why do we have to take it as something different? There's plenty of other verses in the New Testament that talk about Jesus' brothers, but let me just, this is the last one I'm going to cover, Mark 6, 1 through 4. He went away from there and came to his hometown, that, this is talking about Jesus, of course, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So Jesus here, they say, you know, we know Jesus. He's the carpenter. He's the son of Mary. His brothers are James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters are here with us. They're, they're still in Jesus's hometown. Now, listen to Jesus' statement carefully. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. See, Jesus narrows down the accusation. He starts out that a, a prophet is is not being honored. He's saying, I, I am a true prophet, and you're not honor, honoring me as that. Jesus, and of course, Jesus is more than a prophet. But 
uh, in this context, Jesus saying, a prophet, you're, you're not honoring me as who I'm claiming to be. And he says, a prophet is not without honor in his hometown. So he starts kind of big, the, the general hometown. And then he says, among his relatives. Okay, that's the neck that he's narrowing it down. And then Jesus says, in his own household. So who is part of Jesus' own household? It, it's he's already he's already mentioned the relatives. Now he narrows it even further. Now, who is closer to Jesus than his relatives? That would be his own household. So who is part of Jesus' household? If we if we assume that Jesus doesn't have any brothers or sisters, okay. If Jesus' brothers are not really to be taken as brothers, but rather close relatives, Jesus has already talked about them. He says his hometown doesn't honor him, his relatives don't honor him, and now his household doesn't honor him. Now, if Jesus has no brothers and sisters, the only possible people in Jesus' household would be Mary and Joseph. So many scholars believe Joseph was dead at this point. So somebody in Jesus' household is not honoring him for who he says it is. Who is it? Mary or Joseph? He has no brothers or sisters, according to Roman Catholicism. So somebody's not honoring him. I guess Joseph doesn't honor him. Surely Mary, you know, honors Jesus. So the only way to make sense of it is to read into the passage Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, They say Mary couldn't possibly have other children because she was a virgin. So these brothers and sisters must have been the children of Joseph from a previous marriage. Remember, he's this old man that's that's married to, to Mary only to protect her virginity. So these brothers and sisters, I guess, part of Jesus' household would be Joseph's other children from a previous marriage. This is where it it gets so frustrating because this is sola ecclesia. The church said it, so I have to read scripture with this in mind. You you can't just read the Bible and see what it says. You have to find in scripture what the Roman Catholic Church tells you to find, and you have to believe what they tell you to believe. So the Catholic position of the perpetual virginity of, of Mary, everything is unnatural, Marriage is not a normal marriage. It's it's just a formal agreement between a, a virgin who vowed to be a virgin her whole life and this old man who's to protect her virginity. Until, you know, doesn't mean until, you know, this this married couple is never going to consummate the marriage. And so it's it's unnatural. Um, brothers, it's not the natural meaning that, you know, is attached to the word adolphos meaning brother, it, it, it must mean cousin or close relative. So everything about this from a biblical perspective has to be taken in a weird, unnatural way in order to be consistent with Rome's position. So next week, I'm going to cover the other two dogmas about Mary, the Immaculate Conception and the Bodily Assumption. Now, with the Immaculate Conception, the belief is that Mary was sinless from birth. She never sinned. And where do Catholics get this from Scripture? It is from this verse alone, basically. Luke one twenty eight. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 